Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel, coming to you today from a very snowy Sapporo in Japan. On the podcast today, we have Anne Reinhardt, Professor of History at Williams College in Massachusetts, who will be talking about her book, Navigating Semi-Colonialism, Shipping, Sovereignty and Nation Building in China, 1860 to 1937, which is published this year. 2018 by Harvard University Asia Center. Now, trade between China and the outside world is rarely out of the news these days, whether we're discussing the now long-standing expansion of Chinese business and goods into global markets, or more recent developments like the US-China trade tensions that are unfolding as we speak. But for a long time, of course, global trade moved in other directions as Western countries and Japan employed a mix of coercion and collaboration to foist their wares and business priorities on China and dominated the country's trade and customs. Anne Reinhardt's new book, Navigating Semi-Colonialism, focuses on these very dynamics and specifically the place of steam shipping as an index of the political, economic and social processes which unfolded in China between the mid-19th and mid-20th centuries. In Reinhardt's telling, trade in China's coastal and inland waters and the very vessels on which this was conducted become sites where much grander processes crystallize in physical space. The author covers a long period richly revealing in the shifts in relationships and hierarchies which occurred among Chinese and non-Chinese actors over time. Reading this work of quite amazing depth and scope, we're left in little doubt regarding the importance of steamshipping as what Reinhardt herself calls a means of interrogating China's experience of Euro-American and Japanese colonialism. From close-at-hand specifics about what was going on in commercial boardrooms, government departments, and below deck, Reinhardt takes us elegantly to higher levels of elevation too, revealing the place of steamshipping within global developments in trade, transport, and technology, as global modernity took shape. In sum, this multi-level approach offers us fresh, nuanced ways of understanding what semi-colonialism itself was and of perceiving the long legacy of this experience, which to this day informs relations between China and the outside world. But in any case, without further ado, I'll say Anne Reinhardt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Well, thanks very much for uh, agreeing to appear. And uh, yeah, I greatly enjoyed the book and I'm looking forward to talking about it. Um, But before we do, perhaps I could just uh, start by asking you about yourself and your background and how you became interested in in China and history and and, and so on. Um, Well, I I got interested in Chinese studies mostly through an interest in language studies when I was in high school. So when I started uh, college, I started studying Japanese, actually, and sort of backed into Asian studies. And then from there, got very interested in China and Chinese history. And um, um, then went on and did an MA in Asian studies and a PhD in history. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And where, where, where was it? You oh, studied sorry. Um, so um, I, my BA is from Harvard, um, MA from UC Berkeley and PhD from Princeton. And what was it about the particular period that like, we cover in the, uh, or just covered in this book that, uh, that attracted you? Um, well, I, I, when I was in grad school, it was sort of the, at, at least as I remember, it was kind of the height of post-colonial studies in, um, in history departments, I think, that a lot of people were talking about, subaltern studies, etc. And um, I felt like there was a lot of space to bring some of those insights into Chinese studies, even though it wasn't really something that at that time people were talking about a lot in Chinese studies. Of course, in the interim that those kind of investigations have have, um, you know, expanded quite a lot. Um, But that was what got me started on that. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, well, one real uh, rich sort of strength of the book is is the way that it teases out some of these relationships between um, broader post-colonial and and, uh, and and colonial discourses, and what occurred in China, which, uh, as we'll go into, was uh, in many regards somewhat more uh, somewhat more complicated than how those themes have been discussed elsewhere. Um, but. Uh, was it the case that the book came directly out of your PhD then, or? or, or yeah, this is my PhD dissertation. Basically, I, expanded <laughs> somewhat, but yes. It doesn't. Well, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd alert listeners to the fact that it doesn't read like a, a well, like many PhD dissertations that I uh, have, have seen, and indeed, probably like the one I wrote. Uh, so uh, <laughs> that's very kind of you. <laughs> certainly, a good deal more uh, more engaging and readable than than, than that kind of thing. Um, but great. Well, once now we know something of, uh, of where it came from, why don't we um, get right into it? Sure. Um, so. You begin the, the the book as a whole sort of moves chronologically uh, through time, uh, starting as I mentioned in the intro in the mid nineteenth century and and coming forward. Uh, although nineteen thirty seven is the sort of stated end date in the title, there we do actually come forward up to uh, the sort of mid twentieth, uh, giving us a really great um, historical uh, span there. Um, but in the introduction, you you sort of outline uh, the, the the key terms that shape the book um, and uh, and and kind of recur through the periods that you're discussing. Um, So it seems like a sort of pretty obvious question to start with, but could you perhaps give us a bit of an outline of the the shipping situation you focus on here um, and why it is that it provides such a revealing lens uh, through which to look at China's semi-colonial experience and the emergence of nationalism and concerns over sovereignty? Sure. Um, well, uh, um, obviously, the trade, the European traders who came to China were at the time when their access to China was restricted to a single port. They were completely dependent on ships. So um, it sort of um, uh, forms the backbone of that trade structure of um, Westerners, East India Company, et cetera, coming to China. And then as um, after the Opium Wars, as the trade um, system developed a little bit more. Ships obviously remain important in that. Um, and I mean, one of the things that I learned when I was doing the research for this was that um, traffic among the treaty ports was uh, almost an unintended consequence of opening up more than one. Um, but that became a kind of structure that um, Western tr- became very profitable for Western traders to use their ships to carry goods among the open ports. And it took the Qing government a while to kind of catch on that this was going on. But then once that was happening, they the Qing government had a very hard time 
turning turning back to you know you can only come in and out of a certain port. So this circulation among the treaty ports sort of forms a network that um, after eight, after the Second Opium War, after the 1860s, becomes dominated by um, steamships rather than sailing ships. So before that time, it had been cheaper to use sail um, to go back and forth between China and places abroad. But once the Yangtze River was open, then um, it became worthwhile to do this, um, to to both uh, purchase steamships, which were really expensive for this, as well as to fuel them, which was also expensive and sort of hard to do. Um, but then once that was in place, the treaty ports themselves become a transport network, um, so again, they're not just those outposts where Westerners can trade, but they're these sort of important nodes in a shipping network. And as um, Westerners open more and more treaty ports or press the Qing to open more and more treaty ports, then that shipping network grows as well. So what I learned as I was, you know, sort of following following the story along was that um, shipping was in itself really a mode of expansion into China, you know, into the Chinese interior. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, so that, that that picture emerges really clearly from uh, in the early parts of the book that we'll move on to uh, shortly from the point where Guangzhou Canton is the the sole place where uh, where, where outside shipping can can get in and trade to a broader picture where other ports are available. Um, you talk you mentioned there just the kind of interactive dynamics a little between the Qing and and the outside powers, Britain uh, in particular at the start. In, yes. in, in trying to open up more opportunities for trade. Um, this brings us uh, quite neatly onto, I guess, one of the key framing ideas of the whole uh, of the whole book, namely semi-colonialism, uh, which is a, tr- a term associated with, with China's 19th and uh, early 20th century history, of course, uh, a great deal. Um, you have a really fascinating presentation of what this means to you and, and how we how you are theorizing this in the book uh, looking as you say at both sides of the hyphen both the semi yes. part and the colonialism part could you yes. flesh this out and, and sort of explain to us how you understand semi-colonialism uh, in the context of this book and more broadly Yes. Um, no, it's, it's, I, I mean, I've, I, certain people have often said to me, you know, well, this is the way the Chinese state talks about this, you know, are you sure you want to use this term and so on and so forth. And I am using it a little bit against the grain of that um, semi-feudal, semi-colonial kind of formulation, where I'm just ignoring the semi, semi-feudal part of it and looking at um, the kind, the, the, the situation in China in which um you have, you do have foreign expansion into a Chinese territory, um, and and the sort of um, some impingement of Chinese sovereignty. But at the same time, the original government is left intact. And again, for me, I felt important. Um, I, I mean, there are people who would argue that you really don't need the semi part of it. Let's just talk about this all as a larger category of colonialism. But I do feel like if you do that, you lose a lot of the nuance of what that kind of um, margin of preserved um, Qing sovereignty meant for the shaping of the relationship between 
China and the outside powers. And in my book, it's primarily Britain that I'm looking at. Eventually, Japan comes into the picture, too. Um, but I do also, I mean, um, I, I, it's, I think it's significant that Britain was um, the power that really shaped the treaty system the most um, in the period that I'm looking at. Um, so what I was trying to get at was, you know, why that sort of margin of sovereignty still mattered. Um, at the same time, without denying, like taking it to the other extreme and saying somehow, well, because China was semi-colonialism, had uh, semi-colonial rule, then somehow it wasn't really colonized, right? Just to to sort of take away some of the kind of moral charge that I think we associate with colonialism, because I think you can see many very similar kind of processes going on in China, as you can see in countries that are essentially, you know, the formal colonies of another power. So again, I, I was, I, I use the term because it allows me to do, to look at the both and rather than, you know, either or. Um, if you used, um, enough, if, if we used a different kind of term, like um, I, I kind of uh, dismiss the idea of informal empire as oh. a, a useful term of that, because I think that this sort of gets at um, the broader situation that I was interested in. Right, right. No, that that makes a lot of sense, and I think the distinctions that you're making there between uh, semi-colonial and more broadly colonial dynamics come out with uh, periodic, uh, uh, really fruitful comparison with with India in particular. Um, you mentioned that Britain is significant; that Britain is a major player, and and uh, I guess India as a formal colony makes a very uh, productive counterpart to to the Qing experience. Um, and in terms of the Qing and the interaction with, with, with Britain, and as you mentioned later, Japan, you, you discuss this in terms of collaboration. Uh, yes. So this, I, I guess, gets us into this uh, question of the limits of, of action, the, the kind of constrained sovereignty, perhaps, that, that the Qing dynasty uh, had over over Chinese territory at this time. What, 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 what is collaboration uh, kind of for you? How, how, does this, uh, how does this term help us understand what was going on? Yeah, no, and that's another, it's another term that's, I, I imagine is going to get me in some trouble as, as this, uh, you know, as I talk more about the book. But when I'm using the term collaboration, not to talk about, again, the kind of collaboration that we usually associate with kind of wartime situation, you know, collaboration with the Japanese and China, um, and so on. Um, but I, I take it, I took it from you know, old theories of imperialism from uh, Ronald Robinson's idea of collaboration, where he was basically making the argument that um, that some imperial formations are um, contingent on a kind of collaboration between um, the the power coming in from the outside and the existing sort of uh, government within um, within I each particular place, and I found it useful because I, it was very difficult. As I did this research, I found it very difficult to um, be able to look at the agency of the Qing government in a very um, black and white manner, um, meaning that it was hard to see the Qing as either. Um, uh, com completely resisting the incursions of foreign powers into China or as completely um, cooperating with that. And what uh, the I, I liked collaboration because it kind of allowed me to describe um, some of the different dynamics that went into that. So the, the times at which you can see the Qing working 
very consciously to try to limit what foreign powers can do in China, as well as these times when, you know, they might like to do that, but they are really under duress and really can't do that. And so this term collaboration sort of allowed me to, to talk about both of those dynamics. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, um, sometimes, um, I, well, I, I don't know, in, in, in um, older Chinese historiography, I think they would sort of say that Qing was completely cooperating with the foreign powers. Um, but what I saw a lot of attempts at very kind of, um, attempts to really um, hem in what the foreign powers could do in China through um, the sort of early part of the treaty system. And so it's kind of trying to capture the way that that worked, the way that they could resist, but then also at times be somewhat overwhelmed by um, the kind of the asymmetries in power that um, that they experienced. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and in that sense, the, both collaboration and, and semi-colonialism, as you flesh them out, in the introduction there, give names to something that, as you then kind of explain, is, is a pretty complicated, uh, a pretty complicated uh, concept or pretty complicated set of dynamics. So I think that's that's uh, really really helpful um, for setting us up uh, regarding what what the book basically um, the points the book the book makes as it goes through. Um, but of course, the Qing is not the only uh, sort of point of, of concern. Uh, as, as the book proceeds, then we move into the nationalist period uh, that succeeded the Qing after 1911-1912. Um, how was it that these uh, dynamics of, of collaboration and semi-colonial experience uh, shaped the, the nationalist re- uh, agenda and, and the resistance, kind of more widespread resistance to foreign encroachment that followed the Qing? It, um, well, I think in... Um I mean the the sort of feature of the, the of that period it's kind of suffused with this nationalist rhetoric. Um, so you know once the, the once um, the Qing is gone, then in a, in a way there's there's um, how should we say very little um, mediation between say the foreign powers and their critics in China. So that the the you know obviously as we all know the kind of nationalist rhetoric is much stronger and much, much more direct. Um, but also at that time, um, because you you have a clear idea of China as a nation, um, the asymmetries between, um, say, um, foreign steamship companies in China and Chinese steamship companies within China become much, much more pronounced. Um, they become much more evident. Um, so I think that that then sort of further fuels this kind of nationalist um, the nationalist rhetoric and the, the idea of sort of kicking out the foreign powers in order to establish um, a Chinese nation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Well, the, the, yeah, that's uh, that, that kind of... Um, so in a way, a, I mean, just to just to kind of be clear about... Sorry, I'm not sure that completely answered your question, but that in a way collaboration is less relevant in the Republic even though it does still happen to some degree, it's it's less of something that really governs this, that you don't have quite as much the same kind of pressure of expansion that you have in um, the Qing period. And you have a lot more outspoken resistance mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at that time. Okay. Right, right, right. No, that that's uh, that's something that that uh, that you bring out uh, really clearly, and, and uh, really gives us a, a very strong sense of the the key distinctions and the key uh, the key shifts in in really 
uh, dynamics across the whole of society that occurred um, as the as the Qing moved into, or the, well, as, as the, the Qing didn't move anywhere, the Qing yeah. just collapsed, collapsed. But <laughs> as the as China moved into a post imperial uh, or, or a sort of gradually de imperializing era, um, but uh, we'll, 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 we can jump really now, I think, into the into the actual uh, the chapters of the book itself, having got sure. a sense of of how how it's set up. Um, you begin by going into more detail about the uh, operation of, of the treaty ports, the expansion that you already mentioned of, of European interests into these uh, ports in China that are secured as specifically privileged areas where uh, your where foreign powers are allowed to trade because the chain kept a sort of pretty tight, well, at least desired to keep a pretty tight control over where outsiders were allowed to come in. Um, how did, uh, could, could you go into more detail perhaps about the, the, the treaty ports that are such a key part of China's colonial experience and the role of shipping within that. I mean, how, how it was that shipping was embedded in this expansion of uh, of interest in, in locations for trade across China. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, um, how should we say? Um, so very soon after the Qing, and this is right after um, the Second Opium War, the Treaty of Tianjin, very soon after the Qing says that it's going to allow foreign flagships to circulate among the treaty ports, it also makes a move to basically insist that that foreign flagships can only travel between treaty ports, that um, yeah. uh, Western ship owners always wanted to take their ships everywhere, right, it, within China. And they kept arguing that they should have, you know, along with free trade, a kind of free navigation of China's inland waters. But the Qing kind of uses the institution of a treaty port to limit that, to say, no, really the only places that you can stop um, your ships are um, in ports that have been formally opened by treaties so that mm-hmm. those those treaty ports take on they're not only kind of trade centers they take on the importance of being kind of um the the key ports in a shipping network and as the first steamships in China were all foreign steamships um for the most part that um were foreign flag steamships then that network of treaty ports becomes sort of synonymous with uh, steam navigation as well. So you have a situation in which, you know, you can take a steamship between Shanghai and um, Zhenjiang a little bit further up the Yangtze River, but that steamship can't stop at any places in between. Um, And so that both um, kind of gives additional importance to those ports because they have now have a new transport function in addition to whatever trade function they might have um, originally been intended for. And in a lot of cases, it's the shipping that becomes the important part that that port plays in foreign trade. So again, Zhenjiang being an example of a port that had very little trade of its own and was mostly important as a kind of um, place that the surrounding area could send their goods, gather their goods to then be shipped by a steamship somewhere else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. And and, and the, the discussion of the sort of push up the Yangtze, I think, is one really interesting early early part of the of, of the narrative that, that, that you uh, relate. The, the, the ports like Zhenjiang, uh, at least, you know, in today's China, that there are quite a few of these places that are not so uh, prominent anymore. And it's interesting yeah. to look at what, how the shifts I, I 
uh, used to live or spent a couple of years living in Wuhan. And yes. Hankou is another of the main ports, part, one of the three cities that makes up Wuhan, uh, was, is, is somewhere that has retained some importance. But um, these sort of shifts in, in, in power and, and in um, uh, prominence in national uh, national conversation are uh, very interesting. Uh, but you, could you say a little more about how that sort of push up the Yangtze, which really is a sort of blood vessel running right through the centre of the country, uh, proceeded? And, and particularly uh, what I enjoyed was the narrative about getting up all the way up to Chongqing, way, yes. way uh, into the interior. Uh, how, how, how did the sort of to and fro and the collaborative dynamics between Qing and, uh, and outside forces uh, uh, proceed in that Yangtze uh, basin area. Yes. Um, well, once after after 1860, after the Treaty of Tianjin is implemented, then foreigners suddenly had a lot more uh, freedom to travel within China than they had had in the past. So at that point in the early 1860s, you have many, many sort of expeditions going up the Yangtze looking for these transport routes that would link China with India. So it would link China, say, with British possessions in India. And so there was a lot of uh, what we might think of as almost sort of exploration of mapping of the Yangtze that happened kind of early in the period that I look at. And in that time, um, some of those um, observers saw Chongqing as this very uh, rich and lively port. And so it became kind of part of an expansionist narrative that, you know, the real China is just a little deeper inland than we've gotten so far, so that there there's more and more pressure from commercial organizations on the kind of diplomatic, uh, British diplomatic bodies in China to open more and more ports further and further up the Yangtze with the hope of being able to tap this trade that um, these observers had initially seen at Chongqing. Now, again, Chongqing is a very, always was a very kind of lively um, uh, trading uh, location, of, as we know, but um, I think that it, it became almost... Um, a way of sort of saving the China trade for, or, or a kind of dream of if we could only get that far, we would sort of, we could sort of redeem uh, the poor performance of this trade. And so there was a lot of kind of political pressure, particularly from these sorts of chambers of commerce and other kinds of commercial organizations, uh, British commercial organizations to open, um, uh, open more of the river to foreign trade in particular with the goal of reaching Chongqing. Um, and as um, the 19th century wore on and there were more kind of incidents that, for example, um, Oh, I'm I'm forgetting I'm I'm losing the name right now, but you know incidents where uh, travelers, foreign travelers in China, were killed by local people or things that could be used diplomatic incidents that could be used to pressure the Qing. Um, the demands would always be, well, let's open another port, one more port further upriver, one more port further upriver. And so that was used, those pretexts were used as a way of extending that steam narrative, steam network all the way to, um, to Chongqing. Of course, there were also some te technological difficulties in the way. They had to develop steamships that could go through the Yangtze Gorges area, which was notoriously difficult to navigate. But it was, I, I, I think, uh, you know, mostly it was a kind of commercial imperative to get up there. Um, and at the same time, the Qing was quite concerned um, about letting, um, letting foreigners 
um, as far inland as Chongqing, um, there had been quite a number of very sort of violent anti-Christian um, incidents in Sichuan. And so they were afraid, well, if the steam network extends that far, then we'll open ourselves up to all kinds of other pressure from the foreign powers. And so they tried various means of kind of keeping um, of, of curtailing that expansion. So they'd say, well, you know, okay, you can have Chongqing as a treaty port, and this is in the 1890s, but um, you can't um, bring steamships up there um, until a Chinese steamship has gone that far. So they would sometimes kind of try to put obstacles in the way of um, that expansion. I see, yeah. And that, that kind of uh, to and fro constant negotiation and pushing and resistance and then concessions and using excuses, as you mentioned, uh, foreign powers using excuses to grab more stuff, uh, having if, if one of their people who probably shouldn't have been wherever they were yeah. in the first place is killed. Uh, so that, that, that brings out this kind of uh, really complex uh, and, and far from unidirectional dynamic that, that we discussed there in terms of collaboration and, and the, the, the sort of partial uh, retention of Qing sovereignty, um, and and actually these kind of um, slightly sort of feral expeditions uh, <laughs> by roving geographers and surveyors uh, remind me slightly actually of the, the last interview I did with, uh, with Judd Kinsley talking about uh, Xinjiang and, and how Russian surveyors and geographers were poking into China at exactly the same time, um, and then later kind of being uh, attempts were made to incorporate what they had found and 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 their. Um, activities into uh, this kind of slightly enfeebled Qing, uh, Qing governmental structure. Uh, so on that theme, we might move on to the next couple of chapters, two and three, which really go into more detail about how the business operated, yes. um, the, the actual shipping companies uh, in this kind of rather informal haphazard way at the beginning, and then how it was formalized to some extent more from the 1880s. Yes. Um, could you say something about how this process unfolded? Uh, in terms of the actual business organization and particularly the collaboration that, that uh, and, and, and the, what, what's called the shipping conference right that, that emerged uh, as foreign companies and, and notionally Chinese companies started to cooperate yes um, so I think um, just to just to be very brief and schematic um, in the very early years of steam navigation in China, most of the companies or say, let's say the flags that steamships were flying were foreign flags and they were mostly either British or American. Um, but the capital that was invested in um, the steamship business was both uh, European slash American and Chinese that quite a few Chinese um Often compradors, but also just sort of large merchants in the treaty ports invested rather heavily in the steamship business. And um, the foreign companies depended very much on this Chinese capital for their um, for in order to you know be able to finance bringing these ships to China and so on. Um, and it was for the Chinese merchants, it was a way investing in these companies was a way of kind of hiding some of their wealth from the state. So, um, so there was this, uh, um, the, I use the a word that the North China Herald used to describe that sort of business structure. They called these the cosmopolitan companies because the flag didn't necessarily match um, the capital that was involved in those companies. Um, but then in um, the 1870s, that sort of 
uh, much more kind of um, hybrid, uh, those sort of hybrid companies begin to disappear um, and that they're supplanted by uh, companies where there's a much closer alignment between um, the capital invested in the company and the flag that the ships fly. And that happens for two reasons. And one is that um, British shipping, um, especially steam shipping, really takes off worldwide. And there's a lot of interest in Britain in investing in steamship companies. And these um, British companies um, that are completely capitalized by British investors in Britain, as opposed to um, treaty port investors in China, uh, come to China and they have a lot of uh, backing, a lot of power, and they're able to um, sort of defeat many of the sort of cosmopolitan rivals that were initially there. And at the same time that you get that shift towards British shipping and British capital, um, the Qing um, sponsors the formation of the China Merchants Steam Navigation Company. And that was supposed to be a company that would take back um, the essentially um, shipping in um, in the interior of China from foreign companies and bring it back under Chinese control so that the China Merchants Company, um, it, you had to be Chinese to invest in it. It was supposed to be supported, you know, sort of generally supported by the state, but run by Chinese merchants. Um, and that the idea was it could they, they felt like they could make that company strong enough that they could um, sort of kick out foreign companies. Now, in by the end of the 1870s, it's clear that that's not going to happen, that um, um, that most of those cosmopolitan companies have um, fallen away. The that And then the, the field is kind of reduced to two rather strong British firms, one um, run by the trading firm Brit Butterfield and Swire, and the other run by Jardine Matheson and Company, and the Chinese Mer China Merchants um, Steam Navigation Company. Um, so those mm -hmm. three are, are competing, and they're competing rather viciously um, along in the treaty port network um, with one another. And um, in the late 1870s and early 1880s, they decide that they're going to resolve this competition by joining together in a shipping conference. And a shipping conference is a sort of, it's almost a way of kind of cartelizing the shipping business. It's that these companies, they get together, they decide what they're going to charge um, for rates. They, uh, they often will divide the business among themselves saying, okay, well, for you people going from between Shanghai and Guangzhou, you're going to do these many sailings, somebody else is going to do these many sailings, and then they'll pool and split the profits from those as well. So it's essentially, you know, an organization that, um, that controls um, the, um, the business. And it's um, by cooperating, they can keep new competitors out. Um, so conferences are a feature of 19th century shipping in general, um, especially overseas shipping. But there's a kind of key figure, a guy who was both involved, um, very involved in the overseas, British overseas networks, as well as um, who had, uh, um, who was sort of in charge of a shipping company in China, who was a big promoter of conferences. And so it's really sort of on his um 
or sort of with his um, promoting of this idea of the conference, that there's one that's set up between the two British firms and the China Merchants um, Steam Navigation Company. Um, so, so that's a lot of detailed background. But, but the argument that my book makes um, about that conference is to talk about that as a different form of collaboration than the one that I was talking about earlier between, say, the Qing state and um, expanding foreign powers. And that is um, a, a way in which um, this conference or the, the China Merchants Company joining this conference has a variety of effects that it's very difficult to kind of reduce it down to either, you know, they empowered or disempowered the company. They it, it, they it did both. So by joining with these British companies, um, the China Merchants Company, on the one hand, had to give up that original intention it had to kind of take back the, the rivers and coasts of China from these foreign firms, um, because now it was essentially sort of joining with them to control that business. Um, but at the same time, by the end of the 1870s, the China Merchants Company had expanded very, very quickly. It was really deeply in debt. Um, it was kind of on the verge of financial collapse. So joining in this conference allowed it to you know, take advantage of the support that a conference organization offers. And it allowed it really to survive um, all the way uh, until, I, I mean, in my book, it survives all the way until the Second World War, but we still have versions of the China Merchants Company with us today. Um, but um, I guess um, what I'm trying to get at is, is um, so on the one hand, it had almost given up its sort of proto-nationalist mission. But on the other hand, having done that, it kept the Chinese flag represented in those interior networks in China um, for the long term. Um, and so, again, the book goes into kind of greater detail about how that collaboration worked. Um, um, but another feature of it, um, the reason that I also think of it as collaboration is there is a sort of major asymmetry between the British firms and the China Merchants Company. And that has to do with the British firms were very closely connected with overseas British shipping um, and could sort of take advantage of its con their connections to overseas British shipping and finance to build their company in China. Well, the China Merchants Company didn't have that kind of um, that kind of access. And so over time, we see that the British companies grow and grow, and the China, China Merchants Company becomes sort of a, a little bit of a shell of its former self, because it simply doesn't have the same kind of position and the same kind of access to overseas shipping as these other companies have. Um, so that's those are sort of some of the dynamics that make up the sense in which I, I'm I'm writing about um, uh, the shipping conference as a form of collaboration. Right, right. No, that, that it's a, it's a really uh, intriguing picture of of how these sorts of relationships between foreign and uh, and Qing power uh, worked. And I think at least this window of time, this particular situation, does lend itself in some senses to a. Uh, the kind of later analysis where it's semi-feudal and semi-colonial in that you you seem to have these fat cats of various nationalities uh, banding together. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's almost, you can see that a more of a class analysis applies to some extent there than, than just the straightforward uh, uh, colonial uh, uh, kind of foreign versus Chinese analysis. But, but in any case, as you mentioned, it's also a deeply asymmetrical um, context. And 
you, you mentioned we won't have time to go into detail about this uh, now, but you, you discussed the impact of the increasing involvement of Japanese companies yes. later on at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th. Uh, we, we, we could sort of flag that up as something that, uh, that listeners ought to go and investigate because that's a, another very intriguing dimension to this. Um, but uh, as we sort of move on, um, you discussed the sort of asymmetries of, of, of power dynamics and the operation of, of the companies themselves. But moving into chapter four, where you start looking at the steamship as a social space, mm-hmm. as you put it, what was actually going on on board, what kinds of hierarchies and, and uh, social uh, dynamics were mapped out there. Um, there are actually a lot of similarities between the way that these companies of various different uh, national affiliations, including latterly the Japanese, are operating their ships. So could you, could you give us a picture of what was going on in the ships themselves and what this said about the the, 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 the hierarchies, the, the, the violence and the, um, the differentiations that were part of the semi-colonial experience. Sure. Um, yeah, that's a kind of, I mean, that sort of twists the narrative of, of collaboration in a slightly different direction, but it, it is still there. I think that all of these companies, British companies, Chinese companies, Japanese companies were organized in fairly similar ways. Um, so in that sense, um, something like the Chinese uh, or the China Merchant Steam Navigation Company replicates very closely the kinds of social spaces that you would see on British ships or Japanese ships as well. And I talk about both how they're similar and also sort of how some of those things are different. But the two elements of that that I focused on, I mean, as a social space, a ship is pretty complex. And so I just sort of got to two of the main hierarchies there. And one is um, a kind of um, racial and technological hierarchies uh, um, within steamship crews. And this was a situation that was true in all the companies of all three nationalities in which um, captains, engineers, um, positions of command were mostly held by foreigners. Um, in British companies, they're they're held by Europeans. In Japanese companies, they're held by Japanese. In the China Merchants Company, those positions are usually held by Europeans as well. So that there's a, a kind of, um, um, pardon me, and then um, all of the kind of unskilled positions on the ships of people who are shoveling coal or doing sort of standard um, uh, work on, board, in, on the decks, those are almost invariably uh, crews of Chinese workers so that there's a a real sort of shift and a a real kind of line drawn between the kind of common, what they call the common ratings um, on a steamship, the sort of unskilled positions, and then this kind of hard line at which the, the highly skilled positions are usually held by either Japanese or Europeans. Um, and again, I, I, my book talks about sort of all the various reasons behind this. But um, I, the, what I was trying to highlight was the way in which um, the Chinese company in some ways needed to replicate some of these social spaces as a way of kind of uh, competing with foreign companies. Um, and so there's, you know, situations in which um, uh, um, where um, it's hard in China for a Chinese person to get the kind of technical training that would allow them to um, command a ship in 
um, a, a British ship or a Japanese ship. Um, and so it was in some ways easier for the Chinese company to simply hire foreigners to, um, to navigate their steamships as well. Um, and just moving on a little bit, the other hierarchy that I talk about is the way in which there's a kind of similar um, both class and racial hierarchy in the um, classes of passengers on board the ship. Um, so generally speaking, in the steamships that I'm writing about, there are um, there are usually three classes that are set up for um, Chinese passengers, a uh, first class, a second class, and a third class that have kind of different amenities and so on. But then in all of these companies, there's something called, you know, um, uh, it's usually called saloon class, or um, in some cases, it's called uh, sort of a special class. And that is generally um, the most expensive and sort of luxurious uh, mode of travel. And generally speaking, that is um, reserved for um, uh, either European or Japanese passengers. Now, again, um, part of the analysis in my book is trying to show how it's not as if somebody wrote down, you know, here's our rule, like we don't let Chinese into the, the foreign first class of travel. And in fact, that line can be very porous. Um, however, there were various mechanisms that I try to outline for keeping that um, that sort of uppermost class of travel sort of apart from what we might think of as like the, just the local population. So that in Japanese ships, it was sort of a very, um, you know, they had baths and Japanese food in European ships. It was sort of uh, characterized by a certain um, sense of luxury, but also sort of European sociability as well. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the teasing out the nuances of that sort of unspoken and unwritten uh, set of hierarchies is, is tremendously valuable, I think, because uh, it's, it's, it's through these uh, subtle and, and largely or difficult to pin down um, hierarchies and the operation of, of, of these relationships that, that I guess the semi-colonial regime sort of propagates itself and, and sustains itself um, and you document a few challenges and sort of key points at which the, the system became more overtly uh, expressed because, uh, for example, the Chinese passenger had challenged in court their right to sit in a certain part of the ship and dine in a certain part of the ship and so on. Um, and and uh, so, so I suppose that some of these sort of uh, acts of uh, resistance or, or, or these moments where conflict uh, becomes more obvious take us forward um, into uh, a, a more uh, widespread across uh, a, a more widespread phenomenon of resistance to colonial encroachment uh, or semi-colonial encroachment uh, as we move into the nationalist period after the after the collapse of the Qing. Um, how did uh, the, ons- the the collapse of the Qing in, in 1911 and the establishment of the People's Republic in uh, sorry not the People's Republic the Republic of China in 1912 um, change the structures and the shape and the business practices of these uh, of these companies? Um, well, I, I would say in the first instance, um, you have a lot more um, Chinese companies um, that are part of the system that um, in the Qing, it, there was a way in which the Qing tried to kind of reserve this role of the kind of major steamship company for the China Merchants Company. And as you move into the Republican period, you get this sort of emergence of many, um, of varying sizes, many uh, private um Chinese flag steamship companies, and they 
um, often do things quite differently than um, the China Merchants Company does. Um, and at the same time, then you have many more, how should we say, nationalist writers um, criticizing what it's like to travel on these steamships, particularly the way in which Chinese passengers are, um, at least to their mind, very much ignored um, on the steamship. And then um, we have some, uh, the the book goes into some detail about one particular um, ship owner, um, Lu Zofu, who, who uh, ran the Mincheng uh, shipping company that ran out of Chongqing in the 1920s and 30s. And his attempts to actually really um, really reformulate that social space. It was sort of very consciously attempting to build a steamship that didn't look like any of the steamships that had come before um, in that it offered, you know, more amenities to passengers in all classes that it didn't have a separate class reserved for foreigners and so on. So you have some very kind of conscious attempts to almost re um, to revise or reformulate that social space. And then um when um, the the Nanjing regime comes to power, they also take on the idea that they need to start training a cadre of sort of skilled Chinese navigators, which n- none of the neither the Beiyang regime or the Qing state had done in a very sort of systematic way so that they begin in the China Merchants Company, for example, it's it happens within the space of just a few years where they begin to essentially fire all their European captains and replace them all with Chinese who've been trained through new programs, often sometimes being trained abroad. So that there's there's a lot of very kind of conscious attempts to have the steamship space reflect the kind of nationalist ethics that we see emerging in that period. Mm-hmm. And I think you, you you give us a great picture of how the fragmentation in in the shipping market of the multiple companies, the, the local interests that start to develop, reflect the political fragmentation and really oh, the sort of yeah. breakup of China as a whole yes. uh, during that time. Um, but I, but I, I, I guess obviously, obviously the European companies, the British companies, and the Japanese, they don't just go away. Um, so how was it that that sort of dynamics shifted in terms of the operations? Relate, uh, relational operations between the greater number of Chinese companies that were emerging once the sort of Qing uh, monopoly had, had collapsed, um, and and the uh, and the European companies that sort of stayed on the scene. Um, well, that um, that uh, the very sort of tight conference organization that we have in the late nineteenth century into through say nine 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 I'm sorry, nineteen eleven or nineteen thirteen, that 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 conference loses a lot of its power in the nationalist period because of because you have this kind of political fragmentation, because you have so many more um so many more um private Chinese firms participating in this, that it's harder for that conference to really call the shots in the same way that it had in the past. And it opens up um, a lot of space for um, Chinese entrepreneurs to sort of use nationalism as a way to garner market share. So sometimes, I, I mean, for, I have one example of the um, the Sanbei Company, which is a well-known um, Chinese company from that time, using um, the um, May 30th movement, the protests that come out of the May 30th movement as a way to sort of shirk 
the obligations that it had entered into as an agreement with the larger companies. So that nationalism becomes something that can really be deployed almost as a business strategy in that period. And it, it opens up some more space for um, for Chinese companies, um, as well as I, I think um, for the British companies, maybe a little bit less so the Japanese companies were kind of concerned about their public image at the time, um, that they, they were also trying to make certain kinds of um, changes to their companies in order to appear to be somewhat less... Um, maybe imperialistic racist. than they had before. Um, it, yes, yeah. or racist. I mean, to to um, employ more Chinese in, in positions of command um, to sort of level some of the distinctions in the passenger classes and so on. Um, so that they do, you know, change, they do sort of change practices to some degree. But again, those, those practices are not... I, I, I'm one of the things that it was sort of surprising for me to discover, but that a lot of the the kind of social life on steamships, et cetera, is really not very official. So there, it's very sort of diffuse and fragmented. It depends a lot on who the captain is and how they want to run things. But there are some kind of attempts on those companies' parts to try to make um, their their ships more sort of acceptable to Chinese passengers who are concerned about this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and looking at the sort of more on the ground or, well, I suppose on, on board dynamics of much bigger uh, patterns of, of, of semi-colonial, uh, semi-colonial dynamics, this, this, is, this is something that I think is a, a, another uh, real strength of the book because it's so easy to sort of traffic in these, these grand ideas. But when you realize that, that individuals were um, kind of negotiating this in, in, in different ways, it's, it's a... Uh, it's what brings, I guess, your your uh, your theorization of, of these concepts that we talked about back in the introduction to life. Um, finally, move, moving forward into the conclusion, you sort of take us beyond the a uh, little beyond the the even the end of the nationalist of the of the people of the republic. I've done that again, the Republic of China period, um, and into into the early PRC. Um, and I should say that really throughout, you've provided these uh, excellent little uh, kind of comparative. Uh, moments with the experience of, of Indian uh, colonialism, as I as I said, or British colonialism in India, um, and and I think this is where it comes out again the, the kind of comparison of of how colonialism ended in India and and or I mean <laughs> obviously there are debates over whether it ever did, but uh, in terms of the withdrawal uh, of, of of British commercial interests from shipping in particular and and what happened in China. So could you say a little about how the eventual sort of withdrawal of really involve foreign interest in uh, people in, in, in Chinese shipping networks as we moved into the People's Republic diminished as as the shipping network was decolonized as you put it in the title of the conclusion um, yeah um, so I'm trying to think of how to say this efficiently but I, I think in both India and China the idea that um, the the sh- the shipping networks within those countries and along their coasts, the idea that those networks should belong to the ships of that nation was um, a, an idea that emerges in the early 20th century. And it's something that shipping interests in both countries fight for, for most of, so say, um, from the early 20th century through 
um, the the moments of um, sort of liberation and independence in in each context. Um, so that's a kind of prolonged struggle where they're constantly making the argument that well we're a nation and since we're a nation you know we don't we shouldn't have foreign shipping in our internal waters. Um, and what um, I think the the sort of those moments of independence and um, liberation allow for is um, is a kind of moment to um, assert that in a much stronger way than um, they had been able to do in the past or basically succeed in in kicking them out um, in, in kicking foreign interests out. Um, of course, in China, the unequal treaties are um, abrogated in um, during the Second World War in I, 1943. Um, but even after the war and as the Civil War goes on, there's still always this kind of danger that foreign shipping is going to come back because um, essentially China's trying to recover from the war and they're concerned that um, that they won't have enough ships to um, demobilize or to um, move food around and this kind of thing. Um and so, I, I mean, what happens, I think, in both places is that um, the state plays a very um, big role in uh, um, sort of, how should we say, um, uh, controlling um, the shipping industry in such a way to ensure the kind of autonomy of either Chinese or, in, or Indian shipping at that time. And although, you know, some, we, we would generally tend to think of that as something that private entrepreneurs would not support. I mean, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that private shipping entrepreneurs had long desired state support in this regard. And so um, th that there's this kind of meeting of the minds, and this happens in both China and India, where um, the, um, the private shipping sector really welcomes state intervention as a way of ensuring um, what I call in the book shipping autonomy, but um, it, as a way of making sure that foreign um, shipping interests don't come back just sort of of necessity um, at that time. So, so again, in China, that leads rather quickly to um, after um, the early 1950s, that leads rather quickly to these essentially large state owned shipping companies. In India, there's still kind of mixed um, shipping scene um, later on into the 1950s and 60s. Um, but the state does wind up taking over a really fairly large chunk of that sector. Does um, that answer um, your question? Well, <laughs> absolutely. No, absolutely. And it's, and it's fascinating sort of as we wrap up to, to see how the relatively delicate negotiations there over how to decolonize, as you put it, to, to kind of uh, re remove the foreign uh, stranglehold over a lot of shipping business and indeed of course Chinese customs even you know even what was allowed to go in and out of the country um, uh, was you know kind of kind of uh, removed from foreign influence um, how this is something that happens in this kind of delicate way mirroring the early uh, push and pull of, of, of semi-colonial dynamics there between uh, the Qing and outside powers so I think this gives the book as a whole a really uh, a really sort of forceful consistency um, that, uh, that, that that is fantastic. Um, but uh, in any case, uh, as we close up here, and uh, I'd like to thank you again for uh, taking the time to appear. Um, uh, but before we let you go, uh, perhaps I could just ask us uh, ask you our uh, traditional final question, 
on the New Books Network, namely, what is it that you are currently up to? What kind of projects do you have on the go at the moment? Um, sure. Well, thanks so much. I really enjoyed um, talking with you about it, uh, about the book. Um, right now, I'm working on another book, and it's on um, Lu Zofu, who is this uh, founder of the Minsheng Shipping Company that plays a fairly prominent role at the end of my book. Um, and he just turned out to be a rather... Uh, sort of a, a figure from the Republican period who sort of had his hands in a lot of different um, pots, I guess, at um, um, in at that time, so that he was uh, sort of an important intellectual. He was a social reformer, very active in the rural reconstruction movement, um, as well as being this sort of big entrepreneur. Um, and as I was doing research for the book, I kept sort of finding more and more about him that I really couldn't fit into this book in, in any way, shape or form. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to write a, um, a study of, of Lou that looks at some of the other areas that he was involved in. And so currently it's going to talk mostly about um, his involvement in rural reconstruction and his setting up of a model town um, in um, the neighborhood of Chongqing in the 1920s and 30s, um, as well as some of his economic thinking that, again, he was a big advocate of state planning in business, despite being essentially a private entrepreneur himself. Um, so to look at both his economic thinking in the wartime, as well as what um, he came back to China after 1949 um, to sort of join with um, the PRC state and sort of reorganizing the shipping business. So I want to talk a little bit about his um, his ideas in that regard. And then I want to extend the story because his son actually revived his company in the 1980s. It was one of the first um, private businesses um, in of the reform period to be sort of just sort of emerge from the kind of Deng Xiaoping era reform period. So I also want to use um, this earlier story as a way to talk about how um, such figures are remembered and discussed in China today. Um, so that's wow, still still working on that, but but that's that's what's coming up. That's great. Well, that then yeah, that sounds um, that sounds really uh, fantastic and really sounds like it will bring out uh, a, a, another kind of new look at some of this kind of long durée uh, developments that, that uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, really bring us right up to the to the present and, and ongoing um, developments in, in China. Um, so thank you so much again, Anne. Uh, it was uh, great talking to you and, uh, and, and I'm grateful for you having written the book and for, for appearing. Thank you so much. Uh, listeners, thank you once again for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies, which is a podcast on the New Books Network. Uh, we will speak to you next time. Goodbye.